Hey, Skim This listeners, it's Danielle Weisberg, co-founder and co-CEO of The Skim. In case you didn't know, The Skim also has a podcast called 9 to 5-ish, where we interview some of the most successful and headline-making women about the career lessons they've learned along the way. So we wanted to share it with you. Here's a recent interview with former White House press secretary and MSNBC anchor Jen Psaki. We hope you enjoy this episode. And you can find the rest of our 9 to 5-ish with the skim season wherever you listen to your podcasts. For a long time in my career, I struggled with seeking feedback. For a period of time, I was younger for a lot of jobs I had. And I had this constant feeling like I was going to be discovered. And if I asked people that I respected or valued their opinion for their thoughts or critiques... It was almost like it would invite them to expose what I felt were my failings or shortcomings. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Jen Psaki. You know her as President Biden's former press secretary. She was the second ever Democratic woman to serve as press secretary. And was known for her sake bombs in the press room. I want to ask, I can't wait. Was that, have you ever gotten that before? The sake bomb? Yeah. So it's so funny because I I think before I was the press secretary, there's a drink, a sake bomb, which. Right. That's why I was, I am very familiar from college. So I have gone through periods of my life unrelated to my job as the White House press secretary where people have called me sake bomb. But it was unrelated to any interaction I had, of course, with Peter Ducey or Fox News. It was pre that. So Jen became the White House's chief spokesperson after spending her entire career in politics. She worked in the Obama White House for years, serving as deputy press secretary, deputy communications director, and communications director for the administration. And now she's traded the podium in the press room for an anchor chair on MSNBC. She's the anchor of Inside with Jen Psaki, which was just given a Monday night primetime slot. Congratulations. Thank you. You can watch the show Sundays at noon and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern. Jen, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thank you. I'm such a big fan and I'm so happy to be here. And I love your episodes. I learn from them every time I listen to them. So thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you very much. So, you know, we like to warm up with a lightning round, quick questions, quick answers. Okay. What was the first job you got paid for? I was a babysitter in middle school. And then I also taught swimming lessons to three, four and five-year-olds when I was a teenager because I was a high school and college swimmer. So those were probably the two first jobs around the simultaneous time. I think teaching swimming to toddlers evokes a strong sense of fear in me. Like I would not want that responsibility even now. Oh my God. I loved it because as a mother myself now, kids that age say the funniest thing. They have zero filter. And so it was just every day was a bit of a journey, but it was a really, really fun job. What's something we can't Google about you? Basically, I think my family would say this about me and my friends that I have no risk aversion 
I have jumped out of a plane. I kind of love stuff like that. And maybe that's played out in my career, but I don't know if you would know that from Google. Wow. What's been like the strangest rumor or something you've seen like written about you? There was a rumor for a period of time that I made like some like $30 million or something like that, which I find to be so funny because also I have no furniture in my house and my kids go to public school and I worked in government and in politics for so many years that I always found that hilarious. So lots of conspiracy theories about me, I would say over the course of time, that's one of them I always found to be particularly humorous. What is an interview like with the president? Meaning like when you were interviewing for your job or your your previous job, what is that like? So with President Biden, I knew him a little bit, but not well, because I'd worked for President Obama when he was the vice president. And when Anita Dunn, who is a great female mentor and has been in my life, asked me if I would be interested in the press secretary job, I first said, I have to talk to my husband, which sounds a little 1950s, but actually it's because I have kids and we have to I know what it is like for life. And then, of course, I called her back and said, I'd love to be considered. Fast forward a couple days, weeks, I can't remember. And she was like, can you go meet with him tomorrow? It's like, okay. So I drove to Delaware. Point is, this is an important lead up because I was so nervous because I'm a prepper and I was prepared for him to ask me about anything. I think I was studying the South China Sea, Venezuela. I mean, anything, politics. And Dr. Biden happened to be with him because he was announcing the foreign policy of the national security team during the transition. And so we sat down, we had this great conversation that was he was not, he did not grill me on the South China Sea. <laughs> Just in case anyone thought he did, he didn't. We did talk about politics. We did talk about foreign policy, but mostly we talked about the, the nerve endings of the public. And he was very focused on taking the temperature down and making the briefing room and the role one where it was returning to a place of civility and respect of journalists and journalism. And that was very much what we discussed. So the interview was a discussion and it was also kind of his perspective on what he wanted someone in that job to do. And at the end of the meeting, he said, well, thanks for doing this. And I was like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. But I didn't really believe because for your many listeners who have not gotten jobs they wanted, I was the runner up for this job twice before. Right. So I didn't believe I was going to get the job or do the job. I didn't believe it until it was announced. I didn't even tell my dad before the press release went out. <laughs> so who is the first call when you got it? Probably my mom or my sisters. Very close to them. Before we go into the meat of your career and your family and everything, I just want to talk about some basic questions that I have in watching someone in that role up at the podium handling that. One, do you get nervous answering the questions or is it just like you were right for that role because you were unflappable as many people have described you? That's very kind. There were certainly days going in where I was nervous, not about engaging with the reporters, but about delivering on what I was supposed to deliver on for the president. And that sounds very weighty, but it is right. And I think in that job, you have to be able to simultaneously remember that you could move markets, you could cause a diplomatic incident, but also you have to be flexible. And, you know, because the best People who have done any version of these jobs, I think, have a deep, deep knowledge of the substance of the issues, right? Being a press secretary is not about 
having the best quip or the spiciest quip. I mean, some of it is that, although the best ones are usually in the moment. It's about having a depth of knowledge of the issues so that you can answer the questions and then also the 10th question. So in the beginning, I was a little bit more nervous because, you, you know, I had a little case of imposter syndrome, as everybody has, where I, I remember kind of the first week or two going out there to the briefing and thinking, does everybody know I'm doing this? <laughs> Is this fine? And then the more you do it, just like anything, the more you kind of grow into the weight of the role. Less important, but still questions I've been dying to know. Yeah. Did you do your like own hair and makeup? Oh, yeah. Because I think like every day you were like, I am going to get up thinking that my face could be plastered all over the world for something that I said. Oh, my God. First of all, I didn't think about that. I have no idea how to do hair and makeup. Zero. I don't even really wear makeup that much when I'm not working. And I would always leave it almost until the last minute. So I would often still be talking to someone from my team about something that was going to be asked about. Well, I was literally kneeling on my couch in my office and looking in this very dark, probably antique mirror that had been in the press secretary's office and kind of doing makeup. Now, after my first briefing, I got this text message from this woman who was super wonderful and worked at CNN and had done makeup there. And she said, you did such a great job. And I said, oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And she goes, now you're supposed to look natural, but not like you're wearing no makeup. <laughs> so she gave me some kind of <laughs> tips, but I it wasn't it wasn't a big focus of mine. By the way, I realize I want to call this out for our listeners. I would not ask a guy that, but we don't have guys on our show. And yeah. I wanted to know. So it's I a good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is an interesting question that is applicable to women. There are more and more and more women doing these jobs, but there have not been a million women who have done them. So that's a great question. Did you take anything with you when you left the White House? You don't have to say what. You don't have to say, but like, was there something you were like? Well, as we've learned, you're not really supposed to take anything. I know. I know. So, okay, fine. But what I did take was my briefing book, which I wasn't going to take it. I had this leather briefing book and I actually bought Corrine a similar briefing book. I kept all of the paper, which is not secret information. It's things you would say yeah. publicly from my last briefing. So it's sort of like a time capsule in some ways. So I have that. I always may take like an extra cocktail napkin oh, just yeah. in case I leave it, you know, need one that says the White House. Why not? <laughs> so let's get into it. Sure. You started in politics. You've grown in politics. But why do you stay in it? Yeah, it's definitely a grind, but also a passion. You know, I mean, I think why I stayed is because this sounds a little cheesy, but it's true that every day I was trying to do something to make the world a little bit of a better place in my small way. I also worked with some of the best people I have ever met and worked with in politics. And I've worked in other industries and done other things. And obviously I work in a wonderful, amazing place with amazing people now. Um, but I think I, I stayed in politics as long as I did because I worked with smart, interesting kind of do-gooders who wanted to do good and wanted to fix problems and make things better. And sometimes I think Washington and politics and government gets a really bad rap when in actuality, and I mean this in a actually bipartisan way, most people who come here are come here because they want to do good. 
you know, and they have a, a calling to kind of public service. And so I think I stayed because I loved the environment of the people I was working with and just the, you know, opportunity to kind of be a part of history in some ways and have a front seat to it in other ways. I'm curious about, so we mentioned in your intro that you rose up through the Obama administration. You served in different comms roles. I would think politics is as competitive as it seems, especially at that level. How did you find a way to navigate that environment and convince people that you were right for that job at the moment? How did you get your foot in the door and how did you keep going? I got my foot in the door in 2002 um, because I went and I moved to Iowa. I broke up with my boyfriend. I moved out of my apartment in Virginia or D.C., wherever I was living at the time. And I went and worked for the Iowa Democratic Party. I just kind of took a chance and I went on a Democratic training program and I went and knocked on doors. That was my first job in politics. What I've learned over the course of a lot of time in politics and government is I've never had a five-year plan ever. I still don't. I think it can be limiting and also it can drive people in the wrong way. I have always tried to focus on, and this is the advice I would give people, on crushing the job you're currently in, right? You do not have to think about what you're going to do seven steps from now. Think about how you are going to be the absolute best chief of staple procurement or whatever your job is when you're starting that you can be. And then what you do is you find people who you feel like you can learn from. And you also, and I've hired a lot of people in my career, you find people that you feel are growing, right? And have the desire to grow. And that's what networking is, right? It's not like introducing yourself to a senator at a cocktail. I mean, I guess you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's more about finding your people. And it kind of goes both ways. That's an interesting take on it. And I think it's sometimes an easier one than saying you have to be the biggest extrovert in the room. Oh, I don't think you have to be the biggest extrovert in the room. I think you have to be somebody who people look to and say, that person goes the extra mile and they do it with a good attitude and they ask to do more and they volunteer to do the things that nobody else wants to do. And I'm not suggesting that you don't like have parameters for your life and life balance that at all. I'm just suggesting that in a career as you're growing, that's what makes people stand out uh, more than the person who talks the most in the meeting. You were up for the role of press secretary under Obama twice mm-hmm. and you didn't get the job those times. Yep. What did you learn from it? The first time I was up for the job, I was I mean, I didn't intellectually think I was going to get the job, so I wasn't disappointed. I was kind of relieved, but also felt it had been a real growth experience for me to even be a part of the interview process. That was very different from the second time when I didn't get the job, when I really wanted the job and felt like I could do the job. And what's hard, and this often happens in lots of industries, is Josh Ernest, who's a friend of mine, still is, got the job and was great at it. And I thought, wow, he's going to be great at this job. But I was still disappointed. What I learned from that was in part that One of the things that was hardest was that when I didn't get the job, I didn't hear from anybody. I heard from maybe one person who told me I wasn't going to get the job because they weren't going to let me know. And I felt embarrassed and kind of disappointed by the experience of it. But I also learned that 
I was pretty self-involved to think that they were all worrying about my own intake of not getting the job. And what forced me in that moment to kind of get over it and over myself was that after I didn't get the job, I was working for Secretary Kerry, who, by the way, to his credit, called me that day and said, I hear you didn't get a job you wanted, and I'm sorry about that, but I'm happy I get to still work with you because he is um, a wonderful boss in person. But anyway, I, I was going on a trip that was with President Obama and his entire team the next week. And I remember calling my mom and saying, oh, my God, I'm so mortified. They didn't want to give me this job. They obviously don't believe I can do it. I'm now going to have to go spend the time with them. And she basically said, it takes two people to make it awkward, right? If you just hold your head high and engage with them, as you, you love these people. You love President Obama. You love these people you worked with. Don't allow this to kind of make you smaller, which was great. My mother's a therapist. She gives great advice. And that's exactly what I did. And one, it made me feel better, but also it was such a reminder. I mean, first of all, they're worried about, you know, getting budgets passed and wars happening around the world. They're not worried about me. And sometimes you have to kind of recognize it's not about you being a failure or you being incompetent. It's about someone else being better for the job at that moment. And that's okay. And I was far better prepared to do the job because of life experience, because of perspective, because of range of things when I eventually did it. So it sometimes it works out, even if it doesn't feel that way in the moment. Let's talk about that life experience. So you became the White House comms director under Obama and you were pregnant at the same time. Yes. What was it like to take on two very big opportunities at the same time? Well, first of all, Dennis McDonough, who was President Obama's chief of staff at the time, to his great credit, he called me and said, Jennifer Palmieri, who was the communications director, is leaving to go work for Secretary Clinton, and we need you to come back and do the communications director job. Whenever I tell people that story, they're like, didn't you have to interview? I was like, I worked, I had worked for him for eight years. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't kind of a mysterious player, right? I do wonder, like, do they ask you? Is there, I guess there's not a salary negotiation because- no. It, it is what it is. But he, he said, Sarah said that to me. And in kind of the 15 seconds of him talking, I thought to myself, he clearly doesn't know I'm pregnant. I hadn't told that many people at the time. And I'm going to tell him I'm pregnant. This is all going in my head in like a 15 second thing. I'm going to tell him I'm pregnant and he's going to say, well, good luck. Let's stay in touch. Right. It's like what, what went on in my head. I remember where I was sitting in my house at the time. So I basically said, I haven't shared this with many people yet, but I'm pregnant. I'm really excited about it. And I really appreciate you reaching out, but I'm, you know, really excited to be a mom. And, you know, thank you. I don't know what, something like that. And he said, that's great. Kids are amazing. We'll figure that out. Just promise you think about it and whatever. And then President Obama, to his credit, called me the next day. And I always remember this because he said, I don't have that much time because the king is in, as in the king of Jordan at the time. The king is in my office, so I have to I can't keep him waiting. And I was thinking to myself, even if I don't do this job, this is a great story. Yeah. So he said, it's amazing you're expecting your first child. Kids are amazing. We will figure it out. I just want you to come back and do this job. And just you think about what you need. Every work environment is not like that. I am not naive to think that. But it did allow me to think about what I needed and what was possible. And I asked for that. And I said, I want to leave at 530 every day. And I also want 12 weeks off from maternity leave. And there's no maternity leave policy at the White House at the time, just because there wasn't a lot of precedent for it. And they said, OK, great. And I, that's what I did. How do we get more of that? 
it's amazing to hear that and hear the figures that, you know, you don't get bigger than the president of the United States being like, okay. But one of the things that the skin we really focus on is how do we get more of that to be the norm in attitude? Well, one of the things I often think about is how women sometimes think of the only people who can be their mentors or part of the conversation of what they need are other women. First of all, I've had a number of amazing female mentors, and I've had a lot of women who have pulled up the ladder after they have climbed it. I wish that wasn't the case, and I'm very mindful of not being that kind of woman, but that is what I've experienced. So it's important not to limit who you're having these conversations with about what you need in order to have a family, in order to have a life. And, you know, I think that's part of it. Men need to be part of the conversation. They can be allies for women, too. And politics is still a male-dominated business, right? So are many, many industries. And I think it's important to have the conversation. I also think, and you guys do an amazing job of this, is really talking about what the barriers are, right? Because the barriers are not just, they are maternity leave. That is certainly something that should be universal. But it is also about making things possible so that the valued women that people want to have in high level jobs can do it. Right. Women have to kind of make the choice what they're giving up. But like th there's lots of things that are beyond maternity leave that make it viable and possible. So having a conversation about that, I think, is a part of it. And I also think that not limiting kind of female mentorship and female promotion just to other women is pretty pivotal. I certainly agree about the part about the importance of men and getting them involved and, and especially looking at them as equally as, as mentors. I want to ask what, because I think this is important too, to know that with these types of jobs, there are things you're giving up and there are things that you're getting. So you get the job, you become press secretary under President Biden, you've had kids. I say this, like, how did you do it? What did your day look like? What was the amount of help? You know, I think I discovered pretty early that I had to make my own definition of what quality time was with my kids and my husband and my family. And I couldn't let what cultural structure defined that as be what defined it. And what I mean by that is, you know, I used to get up probably at 5, 5.15. And I'm a morning person anyway. I could be a farmer if I knew anything about farming. And my kids, especially my daughter, who was five when I started the job, they started getting up around the same time and they would just kind of follow me around the morning. I mean, sometimes I'd be reading the newspaper, I'd be making coffee, I'd maybe I'd exercise, I would be taking a shower, but I spent quality time with them. I wasn't home at five o'clock p.m., but I had time with them in the morning and I did try to get home so that I could put them to bed at night whenever I possibly could. And actually, I could do that many nights. You have to force yourself to be able to leave to do that. I also kind of carved out for me, Friday nights became, I would try to leave the office early and do pizza night with my sister and brother-in-law and my niece and nephew who live five minutes from us. And that became important to me. And it was actually, of all people, Rahm Emanuel, who at some point, I think after I got this job, I think it was during the transition, he called me and said, you, you have to kind of create your own parameters, meaning you're sort of always available when you're the White House press secretary. Obviously, the White House chief of staff, that's a whole other craziness. And, you know, you want it to be a circumstance where the president calls you when he wants to talk. Of course, he's the president of the United States. He should be able to call you whenever. 
It is also true, and Ram told me this story of President Obama calling him on a Friday night, and, and he had tried to carve out that time for a period of time to be with his family. And he said to the president, can I call you back in three hours? Is this an emergency? And he said, it's not. You can call me back in three hours, right? That sounds like a crazy thing to say to yeah. a president, but you can. And so I tried to kind of carve out time where I could, but you know, you, you do give up and that's why you can't do these jobs forever. That's one of the reasons why. So you talked about that this was a job you had wanted to do for like a year or two. Yeah. Is it weird to go into a job knowing that that's probably where you're going to end up? I mean, I've been doing the same job. I mean, it's different, but 11 years. So I'm like, yeah, you know, if it's a year or two, I guess you, you know, like you're going to give it your all for a period of time. Well, you know, for, for me, I never thought I would be back in the White House again. I, I just never thought I'd like have another opportunity to do that. And I wasn't really seeking it out. I was just helping out on the transition because I felt called to do something. I didn't know what I, I called them and I was like, I don't know what I can do. I'll do something during the transition. But when we had the conversation about the job, we actually talked about me coming in to do it for six to nine months because... I had done a lot of briefings because I'd been at the State Department for two and a half years and they wanted somebody to be in the job who had the experience doing it because it was such an unstable time. But there were so many talented, amazing people on the press team and communications team who would be able to do it pretty soon. So part of my objective and job and assignment was to help teach or help propel people into bigger jobs. And that to me was a very appealing and interesting part of the job. And I had this amazing team, people who had worked for President Biden on his campaign. And we had the most diverse press office ever. I mean, when I was working in the Obama administration, I had worked with great colleagues, but I was like the only female spokesperson for a while, never mind other types of diversity. And now the team of, obviously, Kareen is the press secretary, but Chris Marr runs communications at the Department of Defense. Vedan Patel is briefing at the State Department. Kevin is a spokesperson for the campaign. So anyway, my point is, it was part of the appeal was, wow, I can kind of hopefully share things I've learned with this already amazing, talented group of people. I stayed probably twice as long as I thought or they thought. I don't even know because like a lot was going on. Obviously, COVID lasted longer, Ukraine, all these things. But that was a part of the appeal. But it, it was a, an amazing experience, even for the amount of time it was. I'm thinking about how to phrase this, but you probably, out of anyone we've had on the show or out of, of most of the jobs I can imagine, are the definition of like when you, in a professional setting, disagree with someone or you feel like you are going to just lose your cool, what did you do? Okay, so I don't know if this would surprise people in the right wing, but I'm actually not a confrontational person in real life. <laughs> I mean, I mean you're, you are yourself in real life, but I, I feel sometimes when I was doing the briefing or if I'm doing television, you have kind of like a moral compass of things that kind of moves you. With friends, with people I work with, with colleagues, if I am mad, it is a rarity and you better hide under your desk because it is very rare, I would say. I don't know. People who have worked with me maybe would say something different. I'm not sure. So if I disagree, I will often say something like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let's think about it. I also think that if you are creating an environment that is constructive and productive. This is true. And now having a show and television and this amazing group of talented producers and people I get to work with every day. And also was true in my old job. 
every idea does not good idea certainly does not come from me you know i mean at all and you want an environment where people can put forward ideas some of them are good some of them aren't some of my ideas are terrible too you want an environment where that is possible so if somebody has a bad idea i just don't think a constructive response is to say well that's insane we're not doing that because the next idea that person has may be amazing so i don't know if i get mad it is it is something bad is going down i would say usually what's the thing that you've struggled with the most in terms of your own communications approach that's so interesting I think this has changed in the last couple of years, but I would say for a long time in my career, I struggled with seeking feedback in part because I worried and, and not obviously anymore, but for a period of time, I was kind of younger for a lot of jobs I had. And I had this constant feeling like I was going to be discovered. <laughs> like I didn't, I wasn't ready for the job or wasn't up for the job. And if I asked people, that I respected or valued their opinion for their thoughts or critiques, it was almost like it would invite them to expose what I felt were my failings or shortcomings. That was a mistake and a huge missed opportunity. I mean, I worked for and with some of the most talented and incredible political strategists, communication strategists. I would say probably when I hit 40, I don't know what was magical about 40, although I found 40s to be like, you're like, F it, whatever, you know, I've kind of like hit that point is now I try to aggressively seek feedback because I found I'm a work in progress. I still am. I'm always learning. I told my five-year-old this the other day. He said, it's so hard to learn how to write. And I said, I'm still learning how to do things always. And you seek feedback from everybody. You decide whose feedback you care about, right? And what you consume but I can always be better. I can always get better. I can always improve how I ask a question, how I do an interview, how I present things. And when you aggressively seek feedback from people, you open up the aperture for them to offer it to you where they don't feel fearful of that. And I mean, people I work for who hopefully would give me feedback anyway, but also people who work for me, I want them to tell me. So I feel I struggled with that for a while until I kind of turned some corner where I realized it was a real missed opportunity. I want to talk about your experience leaving the White House and then going to the other side, which is interesting. It's actually not something that we talk about a ton, which is how do you yeah. leave a role? But clearly yours got it got a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> there was a lot of noise around your exit because yeah. as you were gearing up to leave, it was said that you were negotiating with TV networks and you got some flack for that. It raised some ethical concerns. The politics to TV pipeline has certainly been done before, but having now time, is there anything you think you would have done differently about that exit? Well, I think, um, I, Obviously, I wished it hadn't been public before I left the White House because I, you know, not that I, I followed every bar of every ethical everything in terms of disclosure and everything like that internally, but it really unintentionally put people in a very awkward position, including people I now work with. That was very unfortunate. And so obviously that I regret. You know, I, I do think that when I was leaving, there was this feeling like, oh, this has never been. And you just said there, this is a very well-trodden path. 
George Stephanopoulos, Diane Sawyer once worked in the White House, Dana Perino, people of m- many parties, Kaylee. I think at the time, that's what I felt the worst about. I felt bad that it put people in an untenable position because I was still there for a couple more weeks. Now, I hadn't signed a contract or anything. It was just like people had reached out to me and you have conversations. I do think since then, what I've been very mindful of and have certainly sought advice from people on is how do you strike this balance is maybe not the right word, but you know, I worked in government for 20 years. I've worked on three presidential campaigns. I've worked for two presidents in the State Department. I've traveled around the world with presidents. To not talk about that experience would be a disservice, right? I'm not saying you're suggesting that, but I've balanced this in my head. Because sometimes I can say that's not actually a thing or this is a thing people should pay attention to. That is something I think I hopefully offer when I do my show or I'm on other people's shows or whatever it may be. At the same time, I think I also am mindful about not feeling the pressure to overly applaud the president or overly criticize him both ways, right? It is it is how can you be informed and somebody who is uh, transparently a person who I like President Biden a great deal personally, while also being candid about what's working and not. And, you know, I don't know if I get that right every single day, but I do think about that a lot. Two quick questions as we wrap up. What's been the hardest or most unexpected part of transition to being an anchor? So it's so interesting because even though the White House briefing requires you to be quite agile on your best days, it's true in television as well, of course. And one of the things that I think I've thought a lot about in my personal life, even as I've had these crazy jobs and juggled a lot, is kind of the greatest gift you can give to people is to be present, right? For my kids, for my friends. I didn't think about the fact that anchoring a show and interviewing people, the greatest thing you can do is be present and listen. And it took me, not that I wasn't listening, I was, but it it, it is an adjustment to go from, and you may know this, I have my list of things I want to get to and uh, ask people. And, and a very smart person internally in MSNBC said to me once, nobody at home knows your plan, <laughs> meaning like they don't know what your list of questions is to so see where the conversation goes. And it took me some time. I don't know if it's the hardest thing or something that I really have recognized is almost the most important and most valuable thing you can do is to listen and be very present in your conversations. And that's not just about being a spokesperson. It's also about being in the media. That is a great thing. And I also remind myself of that a lot. Last question. Who is someone else we should have on this show? Oh, my gosh. Have you had Kara Swisher on? No, I don't think so. She is a really interesting journalist and someone who is a very straight shooter. And I love that she's candid. And I bet you she has great advice for people. I've been told by our producer that we did interview her, but I was on Matt Leave. Oh. So give me one more. <laughs> okay. I mean, Anita Dunn is somebody who has, I don't know if you've had her on. Your producers will tell you. Uh, she's obviously in a prominent role in the White House now. What I learned from her in terms of how to to support other women is that she's not a coddler. She kind of just pushes you in the deep end and is like, go swim, you'll be fine. I also think there's a bunch of women who are in the national security world, which is a little wonky, but that is a very male-dominated world. Wendy Sherman, Toria Newland, 
who have navigated negotiating as the only woman at the table with dictators. And both of them would probably have some pretty applicable lessons for the world. Those are great. I gave you three. Thank you. And we have not had any of those three. So thank you very much. And Jen, congratulations on everything. And thank you for making time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise.